In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Let me begin by saying this. I didn't want to record this episode any more than you wanted to find it in your podcast player this morning. But this is the world we live in now. A world where we're apparently going to let a sixth wave of COVID hit us without doing much of anything to stop it. Despite rising COVID-19 hospitalizations in Ontario, Premier Doug Ford says the province is doing okay. Again, that little spike, we're being able to manage it. Hospitalizations are up nearly 30% in the last seven days, with 857 people testing positive in hospital. Could this wave be not quite so bad as previous ones? Yes, it's very possible. Could it even be the last wave of COVID? Yes, that is possible too. Although, I did ask the exact same question in December, and the answer was yes back then as well. So what are we in for over the next couple of months, in Ontario and in the rest of Canada? How worried should we be? What are we doing about it? Does anyone still care enough to listen to a 25-minute conversation about a new COVID subvariant that could spoil everyone's joyous plans for spring. I know this is depressing, and I am sorry, but it didn't have to be this way. Since it is, though, we'll give you everything you need to know, including a silver lining. I promise, it's there. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Colin Furness is an infection control epidemiologist at the University of Toronto. Hi, Colin. Hello. Colin, I have to tell you, there was some discussion on our team around if we should even do an episode on this new wave. It feels a little bit like shouting into a void. Are you familiar with that feeling? I've been familiar with that feeling for a couple of years, and I think the only thing I can say is it's better to have a conversation than just shout at the TV set. But there's a lot to be frustrated about. There's a lot to be, I think, frightened of. And there's there's a lot to be concerned about in terms of how this is being managed, or maybe I should say mismanaged. And we're going to get into all of that. But first, I want to ask just about the general perception among people around the province, around the country. Do you find in your work that interest or attention, even among people who do, you know, accept that COVID is real and take precautions and et cetera, et cetera, is waning. Um, I just don't know if the level of concern is what it once was. I think we can segment people. I think there's been a real divergence. There are some who are immunocompromised or have kids in school and are really attuned to the risk or have elderly parents, or something else that has triggered them into being extremely concerned. And they are on top of this just as much as I am, and that has not wavered. 
Then there are people who get it, who understand it, but who are genuinely tired and have said things like, look, what's the end game? Like maybe, maybe we just have to let this wash over us. So kind of resigning themselves to it, which is not to say that they don't think it's important, but they just feel defeated. And then there's people who have swallowed the government narrative that this is really no big deal and we should, in finger quotes, learn to live with it, which is to say, just surrender to it um, because it's no big deal. And and I, I really bristle at that one. And then, of course, there are the people who are actually pretty tightly wound, but in the wrong direction. They they want masks off. They want people to get infected. They they want to push through. They want to to get in a truck and and, and shout freedom. So you have all this this whole wide range. We didn't have that at the beginning of the pandemic. Everyone was in one place and 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 huddling and concerned. And now, as I say, there's been this divergence. And so you, it's a real cacophony of voices of what do we do next? What should we do right now? Before we talk about what we should do, let's qualify exactly what this is. Are we officially in a new wave of COVID? How do we know if we are? And can you give us some numbers that can uh, illustrate that? Sure. There's no set definition for what a wave is. Right. Typically, it's got it's distinctive. So it's it's distinctive from what's happened before. Cases go up, they go down. And then they come back up. And we talk about waves because this is what communicable diseases do. And, and they'll do that regardless of what we do. It will come and it will go away again. So we didn't get what we have now because we took our masks off. We decided to take our masks off when any reasonable person looking at the data would understand that we're heading into another wave. So we just we basically made it as bad as possible. But there's a lot of, I think, confusion about that. And I think that's really important. You can really only describe a wave in hindsight. You can detect pretty close to when you're past the peak. In other words, transmission slows, and then it starts to slow really significantly. And at that point, you can say, yes, we can see the shape of the wave, and we can even confidently predict its end. So it is a, it is a little bit, uh, it is a bit speculative when we're still on the upswing. But we have seen wastewater uh, levels, and that's the only useful measurement we really have as a leading indicator. Uh, wastewater measurement has started to tick way up. And it's not terribly high yet, but the trajectory or the slope of that line is concerning because it's really steep. We don't know how high it's going to go. And the reason for that is that we, for the past, the previous wave of Omicron, we stopped doing surveillance testing. We stopped Mm -hmm. doing that measurement. In other words, we don't know whether at the beginning of March, 2 million Ontarians had had COVID or 8 million Ontarians had had COVID. We, we have no idea. And that turns out to be a massive determinant in terms of what happens next. So with that uncertainty, we don't know. We know the science table suggested this was not going to be such a significant thing. We're already way outside the science table's projections, unfortunately. In other words, it's been larger and faster. And I think we could attribute that to... BA2, the Omicron subvariant that is extra contagious, we can we can attribute it to that. It looks like perhaps we didn't have as many people infected in January and February as we thought, which would provide a bit of immunity. And I think we have also, and this is speculative, but I think we have also really underestimated just how much masks were holding things back. And when we decided we didn't need them anymore, and many people started taking them off, Uh, that's when I think we really, really started to put a lot of wind in the wrong sails. 
Before we move on to the subvariant that I want to ask you about, you know, you mentioned Ontario numbers and Ontario science table. Just for the rest of our listeners around the country, I'm not asking you to get into the the data from the other provinces. I know that's uh, probably not your area of expertise, but uh, across Canada, how closely have COVID levels tracked uh, across provinces? Like this is happening in Ontario. I believe it's happening elsewhere, right? It is. And I think that's actually a really important question because it does cause some public confusion. Alberta and Saskatchewan also threw their masks away and and didn't get clobbered as immediately as Ontario. And so some people point to that and say, clearly, there's no relationship. And, and actually, that reflects a misunderstanding. Waves move as they want to move. We don't have much control over that one way or the other. Okay. We can make it worse. We can make it better. But a wave will come and go depending on luck and circumstance and also just how much temperature temporary immunity is in the population. In other words, if a wave comes through and infects a lot of people, that buys you some time where cases will go away and you can do whatever you want and cases won't come back right away. It will take some time. So we have some provinces that are, I think, synchronized pretty closely with Ontario, some like BC, which is a bit behind, Alberta, Saskatchewan, a bit further behind. Quebec seems to be closer to Ontario. So we're all going through the same wave, but at different times. I think that's a really important thing to understand. And so when people talk about, we took our masks off and we got clobbered the next day, or we took our masks off and nothing happened for two weeks, it's kind of missing the point. You, you're going to be at a peak and a trough when the virus decides you're going to be at a peak or a trough. In a second, we'll get into uh, exactly what masks may or may not have contributed to it and what our options are at this point. But first, you know, you mentioned BA2. Um, it's a subvariant, as I understand it, of Omicron. What do we know about it so far? How is it different from the original variant? And how does that impact uh, how we should prepare for it in Canada or what we'll see? Those are very important questions, and, and the answers are still a little bit thin. And part of that is because we're still learning original Omicron. We've only had that for a few months. And when we think about you know, long-term effects, we haven't even had a long-term with Omicron yet. So there's a lot we don't know about the original Omicron, and so that's concerning. What we know about Omicron, which applies to BA2, is that one of the two ways in which it can infect cells is quite impaired in, in Omicron. And that's good news for us. That's why hospitalizations have been a little lower with Omicron than with Delta. Mm. It's why even though kids are going to hospital in record numbers, uh, they are recovering far more easily from Omicron than from Delta. So there's there's some, you know, some in a sense, some good news about outcomes with Omicron. Um, but at the same time, vaccination rates have been going up and they're higher now than they were with Delta. So it's awfully difficult. It's pretty nuanced to try and compare which one is more serious and by how much. With BA2, the significant difference, apart from some specific mutations, the difference appears to be uh, a little bit of immune escape. That is to say, if you had Omicron, you can still get infected with BA2. So we that seems to be the case. And that's disappointing, obviously. Uh, BA2 also seems to be a lot more contagious. And being more contagious can happen in a number of different ways. It can be simply that the virus replicates faster. And so people who are infected spit out more. 
It can mean that it's more virulent or more efficient at attacking cells, and therefore a smaller viral dose or, or less contact time uh, can, can result in infection. And through immune escape, that is to say that it's just sufficiently novel that your body doesn't recognize it quickly enough for what it is. And I'm, I actually don't know what we're dealing with with, uh, with BA2, which one of those it is, or whether it's a combination, but it seems to be significantly more uh, contagious. It may well be, and I suspect it is, uh, more contagious than measles, which up until now has been the high watermark. Right. Measles is the most contagious virus we know for humans. And I think Omicron has exceeded that. It's very, very difficult, very hypothetical to try and compare apples to oranges that way. And and so we have to we have to just be careful that we don't make strong statements. But it does seem like it is. And that's really worrisome because, you know, with measles, you could walk into a room that someone with measles left two hours ago and get infected. Wow. So measles really knows how to to go from person to person very efficiently. And if Omicron one or BA one or BA two is is in that neighborhood of infectivity, it shouldn't surprise us that when we do things like make masks optional, that COVID then starts to rip through the population pretty quickly. So it doesn't seem like it's more severe in of itself, but being more contagious means that it reaches people who are vulnerable, who used to be safe. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people who are elderly or under five years of age and are, are vulnerable just because of, of being small and young and not vaccinated. There are people with immune conditions or other kinds of risk factors, diabetes, obesity. There's a long list of things that make you particularly susceptible to uh, to serious outcomes. Those people have been have been working really hard to stay safe, and now they've got to work way, way harder. It's way harder for them to stay safe. So we're seeing hospitalizations rising, not because Omicron hits the average person harder, but because it hits more people, including people who know that they're supposed to stay away from this, but are simply less able to do it. I realize it's probably not a great idea to hope for the best in a situation like this, but when we discussed Omicron um, around Christmas time and in January when the wave was really hitting us hard, there was a sense, and and not just a sense among the public, I think, a, a sense among a lot of people who look at this as well, that following waves of COVID after Omicron might be a smaller and shorter just because of the sheer magnitude of the wave we just went through. Do we know yet if that could be true, if it's not true? I know you mentioned it's possible to get reinfected, but it sure seems like we we got pretty darn close to everybody either having COVID or having two or three shots in January, February. Uh, we don't know how many people got COVID. And and that's because obviously a lot of people experience in minor form and we stopped testing and and we even stopped supplying rapid tests. So so there's a lot of people who really have no idea. They got sick and they don't don't know right. if it's COVID like it, it it probably was. But different viruses are going to behave differently. Most of our experience with big pandemics is influenza. And and flu is a very, very different beast. And so I think it's dangerous to look at what we know about flu and say, this is how it's going to behave. This is a really, really different animal. And that means that any assumptions we make are very speculative about what might happen next. 
what we know, generally speaking, for viruses is when they enter a new biome, they adapt to a new species, which is what COVID did when it when it entered the human population. It, it's initially often extremely deadly because it's it's there's no population immunity, so mm-hmm. so we're we're really unprotected, and a virus doesn't actually benefit from killing its host. In fact, that's the opposite. All a virus wants to do is reproduce. Killing its host is counterproductive. It's kind of a byproduct of success if the virus uh, is is too good at reproducing. Right. So what tends to happen just through natural selection, through you know through what Darwin taught us, is uh, forms of the virus that are better at reproducing and better at keeping their host alive tend to be more successful. And so what that means is over time, very often viruses become less deadly and more contagious. And so things like the common cold, and there are four coronaviruses among common cold viruses that affect us. Mm -hmm. It could be that millennia ago, or possibly even centuries ago, uh, they emerged as nasty viruses and now have settled down to a common cold. So that's, that's possible. The problem is we don't know. We don't have enough experience. We went through SARS, but SARS was a very clumsy, low infectivity virus that didn't uh, wasn't contagious until you were symptomatic. So it was quite easy to control. Once we knew what we were dealing with, it was very easy to make it go extinct, which is what we did. So we didn't actually learn that much about pandemic coronavirus from SARS. And we knew about our preparedness. So we knew, we knew about mistakes that we made, but we didn't really learn much about how the virus behaves. So we're, we're on really thin ice, I think, trying to say what's going to happen next. What I'd like to believe, going back to your point about hoping for the best, my hoping for the best scenario is that Omicron is, while not being horribly serious for many people, is, uh, is going to be the last big one we deal with simply because it's so contagious. It sort of as a, almost as efficient as it gets. The, the mutations that made Delta dangerous, uh, that made it, that, that made it quite virulent, that, that caused a lot of injury and death, those mutations are still there. They're disabled or impaired. So we're not out of the woods in terms of what might happen next. So my fear is that we get a variant that we have a hard time coping with, that uh, evades vaccines even more so than Omicron, that produces ugly outcomes. That doesn't seem likely to me, but it is it is possible. I just hope that we have, in fact, seen the worst and that we will have later this year an Omicron-specific vaccine that will return the vaccine to the effectiveness that we saw in 2021, that we vaccinate enough of the world to make this thing, to keep this thing really under control. So that, to me, is, is, is where we could go with this. If a new variant emerges, it'll probably emerge soon because we have maximum global and infectivity right now. And so every single person who's infected is an individual Petri dish. So if we have a few billion Petri dishes all going at the same time, that's going to be the where we're most likely to churn out a new variant. There's been a couple of variants of caution or variants of interest, but nothing that has emerged that is super scary yet. And, and so that does reinforce my hope somewhat. One of the things that we've done in previous waves is look to countries. You know, as you mentioned, some provinces in Canada are ahead of Ontario or behind Ontario. We've looked to countries, um, usually across the ocean, that are uh, usually ahead of us on their progress in terms of COVID waves. What do we know from Europe and countries there that are further along this BA2 wave than we are? We know that 
Omicron antibodies from January and February do not stop you from getting infected now. So in the UK, for example, which has been very libertarian, I mean, really, they have, they've, they've had, if not an explicit, then a tacit let it rip policy in place almost from the beginning. Zero prevalence is, is almost 100% in the UK from Omicron. In other words, 97, 98% of the entire population has antibodies indicating Omicron infection. So you'd think that would be enough for herd immunity. In fact, it would have to be enough for herd immunity. And yet what we're seeing in the UK right now is record levels of hospitalization. So there's a ton of people getting infected, maybe a million cases a day in the UK. So they went through hell and high water only to discover that they are doing that again. So that's that's a problem. Uh, Denmark is another country we have learned from a lot. They got Omicron. Um, they have experimented with significant protections, masks and, and, and vaccination, and they have experimented with doing away with them. And their experience has been pretty predictable. They infected a lot of people. The interventions to protect people were effective. And then when they let them go, just like Ontario, things got much worse. So those are those are some some lessons that we've learned uh, from the European experience. There's other European countries that you know haven't taken away masks that are being taken a little bit more seriously. Often they're countries that got clobbered early on and and are feeling a little bit gun shy, feeling a little bit more uh, cautious, and you know they provide more positive role models. But we we do seem to see, and this is kind of depressing a bit of a failure of governments to look at each other and say, wow, that mistake you just made, we're not going to make that mistake. And I'm not seeing much ability, and it surprises me, I'm not seeing much ability of governments to look at other failed experiments and say, let's not do that. Instead, we tend to seem to be on a global zeitgeist repeating each other's mistakes and somehow hoping for a different outcome. And that's that says to me that, you know, our Globally, our, our politicians are not the smartest or they're not listening to the smartest advice. And, you know, that's when you've got decision makers who are making poor decisions, you're going to have bad outcomes. You mentioned that many provinces in Canada, including here in Ontario, um, out in the prairies and in other places as well, have recently dropped mask mandates and basically all uh, protections against covid is there any way to tell if that is directly responsible for this wave or were we going to experience this wave regardless? And, you know, obviously masking and other things would help with a matter of degree. Um, but this is a pattern that's just going to keep going anyway. We were going to get BA2 regardless and we had a choice to make. Was it going to be something like a hump that comes on the end of the Omicron wave? And that's what the science table in Ontario more or less predicted from from its own modeling, or is this going to be a significant wave on its own? I believe, and it is speculative, but I believe that our decision to make masks optional put a really big log on a smoldering fire and made it a big fire. So I, I, I do I do believe that's the case, but it's it's difficult. As I say, the virus will do what the virus wants to do, and and it can be difficult for us to really gauge the effectiveness of interventions. That's why there's been, it's been such a contentious issue. Do lockdowns create any benefit? We know they create harm. Uh, Does vaccination really help? Do masks really help? I believe they do. And I think the thing to point to that I think convinces me the most is schools, that we had an almost two-year argument for whether transmission is even happening in schools. And masking at schools 
uh, kept transmission down to the point that a lot of people who sort of, you know, I can call them pro-COVID or pro-freedom people um, said, look, just just open it all wide. Kids need to smile. And, and you know, I don't like putting masks on my kids. I'll be clear about that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and let's just do that and it'll be fine. Well, that's what we've done. And now we're seeing infection rates at schools just through the roof and it can't that can't all be coming from the community it it really just can't and that's a problem because schools have always been a focal point for public health they've always been a focal point for public health because they've always been a focal point for communicable disease in other words one infected family sends a child to school who then infects all their classmates who then go home and infect their families. So schools represent this nexus where you can have a a virus jump from one family to all families in a very, very short space of time. This is why we have required immunizations for school. Uh, COVID should have been a required immunization for attending school in person. That was a, that was a gigantic, gigantic mistake that we made. So we, we, we didn't require vaccination and then we, we removed masks in a setting that we know and have known for you know, centuries, literally centuries, uh, that when you put a bunch of kids together in a schoolroom, you get spread of communicable disease, you know, going all the way back to smallpox outbreaks and cholera and other kinds of dreadful outbreaks from the past. We know this and the world is the world. The natural world works the same today as it did back then. So I look at that and I say, we have failed particularly badly uh, when it when it comes to trying to maintain any vestige of protection by removing them all at schools, that was that was a um, is, I would say I would call it worse than foolish. Um, it feels deliberate. It feels like a strategy to say, how can we infect everyone super fast? How can we just take the bandaid off fast? Let's infect everyone, and then in a few weeks when they go to the polls, they'll be happy it's over, and that's that. It feels like I don't know that was a strategy, but gosh, it sure seems that way. That brings me to the last thing that I want to ask you about, which is, you know, what could we do versus what will we do? In Ontario, our premier, as you mentioned, there's an election coming up, said recently that even as this wave develops, there's no need to bring back protections because we now have hospital capacity. Uh, In New Brunswick, as you were talking about masks in schools, the province just refused a school board's request to reinstate mask mandates in schools. So it's pretty clear uh, that governments don't want to backtrack on this. I guess my question for you is, A, uh, should they and what could we do right now to nip this wave in the bud? And then B, to follow up on that, given what you've seen from public health units uh, across Canada, will we or will we just tough it out and hope uh, we ride out the worst of it? So I don't think there's any bud left to nip. I think we are in exponential growth and it is enormously difficult, enormously difficult to bring that under control. Prevention is relatively easy, but trying to, once those horses are galloping downhill as hard as they can, trying to get them to stop requires so much more effort than it would take just to get them to not go running in the first place. So when, when the Ford government said, we expect an increase of cases and that's okay because we have hospital beds. That said to me, they don't actually understand how communicable disease works. And they, they truly, they don't. That is a really poor idea because once it gets going, you actually cannot make the claim that you have enough hospital beds because you have no idea. Right. And if we, if we were to have any idea, it would be from modeling and modeling would be based on surveillance, which we also stopped doing. So we really, really turned out the lights in the room and said, I'm sure no one's going to stub their toe. It'll be fine. No one's going to fall. No one's going to break a bone. And that's a really, really bad plan. 
plan. So I can't tell you that we're going to have a catastrophically big wave because nobody knows. But it seems to me that reassuring everybody uh, that this is going to be manageable is is foolish because communicable disease does not work that way. The fact of the matter is the more cases you have, the more cases you get. It builds up exponential growth, uh, gets a lot of momentum going, and then it's going to play itself out. So I don't think there's a bud to nip. I think we would have to put N95 masks on everybody, and we would have to close down probably schools and restaurants um, for a good month or so. And I don't think anyone anywhere is going to want to do that. And I suppose it's not for me to say that we should, but that's that's an answer to your question. That That's what it would take. We we have let an uncontrolled situation develop, and it would take extraordinary measures to try and bring that down. Um, and, and honestly, even if we did those things, the wave may actually just continue to go and peter out on its own. The faster it rises, the faster it falls. So the shortest way out of this, I suppose, might just be to do what we've, unfortunately, to do what we've been doing, which is not very much. I don't think that's a good idea. I will never support that. I will never endorse it because of long COVID, because we have no idea the long-term harm we're doing to our bodies, but we have some inkling about short and medium term, and that news isn't good. This is not a cold where once it goes away, you're good to go. That will be true for some, but for many, the damage may well be permanent. And I think what bothers me the most is if that's true, then the only thing worse than getting COVID is to get a second infection mm-hmm. and then a third infection. So right. we don't have a plan for managing this. And what I really bristle when I hear politicians say we need to learn to live with COVID, that being code for let's do absolutely nothing and let people get infected is a commitment to letting people get continually infected. And if you're losing a little bit of brain tissue each time, and there's an, there's an indication that that's exactly what's happening, the cumulative effect could be quite catastrophic. And so we're in this position where I don't think there's a winning play. I think we have taken it to the point that we there's not much we can do. For people who have not yet caught COVID, and I count my family in that group, continue wearing N95 masks and you just you don't take them off. You don't take them off for anybody when you're in, in shared air in public. And that's pretty restrictive. It's pretty restrictive, but it does work. Colin, thank you for this. I wish I could say I didn't experience deja vu at like six different times during this interview. Yes. There's a lot that, that I've been saying that I think others are saying and that there's a lot that I've been saying that I was saying a year ago. And, and I think that's really frustrating too. Our knowledge has increased, but it has not actually changed my appraisal of the situation. The situation has changed because politicians have been making progressively worse decisions. And that's just really disappointing. I appreciate you taking the time to explain it to our listeners, though. My pleasure. Thanks. Colin Furness of the University of Toronto. That was the big story. If you made it to the end, congratulations. You still have an appetite for COVID stories. We appreciate you. I'm sorry we're still doing this. You can find more at thebigstorypodcast.ca, including so, so many episodes on COVID, but a lot of fun episodes on other things, too. You can talk to us and tell us to stop doing these damn episodes at The Big Story FPN. And of course, you can email us, The Big Story Podcast, that's all one word, at rci.rogers.com. You can find The Big Story in your favorite podcast player. You can find it on your favorite smart speaker. Just ask it to play The Big Story Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.